0: Jesus was a part of the creation in John. We read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians says that through Jesus all things were made. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, we read that in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now, when we read Genesis 1, we often think that God, the Father of the Trinity, created the world. Because it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Rarely do we see Jesus, or think of Jesus, as actively involved in the creative process. Yet He was there, hands-on. And the New Testament reveals that, much more than hands-on, that the world was created through Jesus. And however that was, I don't know, but the Bible tells us in three distinct locations that it was through Jesus that it happened. Now... It has been theorized and I think that this is possibly correct. You may not grasp this right here but think about it tonight or in you're having some boredom time which never happens for you guys. Just ponder this. But it, it's expressed that the Trinity as we know it's, it's God in one but there's three persons of this unified Godhead Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that it is the uni- um It is the fellowship and relationship of the Father and the Son, love-binding this relationship, their love for each other emanates in love to the world. And their relationship, their happiness, this fellowship has manifested itself through two acts in history. The first is creation. As God can say, it is good. Because when creation came, it was an emanation of the Godhead in union. The blessed happiness and satisfaction of the Godhead emanates through creation. And then it was climaxed at redemption when Jesus came on the cross and revealed once and for all the intimacy of Him and the Father that He Himself was God and came to us. So Jesus was very much involved in Genesis 1. And I think we see it a little bit more in Genesis 2. Perhaps it's something I want to propose, and just let us think about it a little bit, seeing Jesus more in the Old Testament. Because as He said to the disciples on the Emmaus road, look, "The whole thing is about Me. The whole thing. The prophets and the law were all to show My coming." And I think we would be wise to look more for Jesus every time we open the Bible. He is the Word, John said. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. So let us dive in. Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that God in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now the generations is an interesting phrase. Don't think that the heavens and the earth had children (laughs) and that those children had children. This isn't exactly, although that is what generations means, the Hebrew word being used here is teledot. And in the Genesis book, there are 11 teledots, generations. You'll find that word 11 times. And every time that word is used, it is representing a natural chapter break in the book of Genesis. The author Moses actually inserted his own chapter divisions. Now, you guys look in your Bibles and you see chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and the book of Genesis goes all the way to 50. The chapters in your Bible are not inspired. They are not given to us by God. Man put these in here for our navigation. So that rather than saying, go to the place where Abraham offers up Isaac, and you've got this huge book of like 50 pages, where is Abraham and Isaac? It's so much easier if I just say, go to Genesis 22. Oh, I can find 22. That's why we've done that. It's to help us navigate the Bible. Now, um, Moses apparently had 11 divisions in mind in the book of Genesis. We have 50 divisions to make the readings in smaller increments because some of these go on and on. Um, But these divisions are actually located pretty well. Um, So, the generation, verse 4, what Moses is doing here is he's inserting chapter 1. So, the whole first chapter of Genesis, the account of creation, was really an introduction to the book of Genesis. He wanted to lay the foundation of who Yahweh is before he starts showing the Israelites their history of how God brought this nation together, so that they know that Yahweh is the one, the Creator is the one that's bringing them as a nation into the promised land and that His law that He gives to them is worthy to be followed and trusted because it is the same word coming from that God that made the heavens and the earth. His word, remember we saw it ten times spoken in chapter one, created the world. Well, in Mount Sinai, ten times He gives them His law and thus Moses is connecting for the Israelites that this is a God worthy to be obeyed because he is the creator. He is the God, apart from the pagan and especially Egyptian mythologies and pantheons. So, Moses introduces with creation. Now he gets into the book. Chapter 1 is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, I said that. That's that word teledot. Essentially what generations means when you see this is it's basically saying this is what happened to the heavens and the earth. Or in other words, this is what came about the heavens and the earth. This is what we've seen as created. Now, this is what became of it. Just like I would say these are the generations of Tim, and I chronicle the generations of Tim, the book may not necessarily be about Tim. It's more about what happened to Tim, what became of Tim. Tim's a man who lived a life. But his offspring began to live other lives. And maybe one offspring became a famous train robber, like one of my family members, Jesse James. I'm related. <laughs> um, or becomes like some famous preacher like Billy Graham. I'm related to No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, it, we, it, we look at what became of Tim by looking at his offspring. And eventually it comes down to this family that's either completely corrupt or completely like a global, universally changing. So, the generations of the heavens of the earth. Basically, read it like this. We are now looking. Moses is intending to show us, after showing the creation, he's intending to show us what happened to creation. What came about it? How did it become what it is today? Because what we know and experience today is not what we hear about in Genesis 1. So, this chapter, go over to chapter 5. This chapter takes us all the way to our chapter 5. You notice right there in verse 1 it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So right there you have a new chapter. That section is going to tell us what happened to Adam. But in this section tonight, we're going to look at what happened to the heavens and the earth. What became of them? And as we'll see, in chapter 3, it got corrupt. It got cursed because of man's sin. And in chapter 4, man's sin led to murder and the fraction of family relationships. So this is what's going to become of the good creation. It's going to quickly go down. Alright? So that's what that means. Now, notice too in verse 4 that it says the Lord God. Lord is in all capital letters. That is because... This is God's personal name, Yahweh. Every time you see Lord in all capitals throughout your Bible, that is the name Yahweh. And God told Moses what that means. It means the I am that I am. Remember at the burning bush. Who should I say sent me? Tell them I am that I am. That's the name Lord, Hebrew, either Jehovah or Yahweh. I think Yahweh is the more proper way to say that. And it means As I said, I am that I am. God is saying, I am (coughs) self-existent and self-sufficient. Therefore, I am all-sufficient. Everything you need is here. I don't need anything. I'm self-sufficient. Now, I point this out because this is the first time Yahweh is used in the Bible. Never was it mentioned in the creation account, but it is here in chapter 2. And it's connected to the word God. God is the word Elohim. And that's the word we find throughout chapter 1. Elohim refers to the Creator. Yahweh refers to the Redeemer. Yahweh is the one who made a covenant with Israel, who pulled them out of Egypt. Yahweh is the one who sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. God, Elohim, is the one who created the earth. Wait a minute, so is Moses saying there's two gods? No. That's why it's so big that he puts the two words together here. He's letting Israel know, your Yahweh is the Creator God. That's the God that you worship. He is this magnificent Elohim, Yahweh, Creator, Redeemer God. So we have this great identification of God. And so now we're moving into God's personal side with mankind. As you'll see, chapter 2 is, in a sense, a retelling of creation. Through Yahweh's perspective. Through the perspective of His love for mankind. So, let me move on. Or we'll never get through this. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice that that's reversed there. Usually it says the heavens and the earth. This time, earth and heavens. Again, we're seeing God's personal side and love for man here. The focus is now on earth. Verse 5. We now have a situation, okay? Look at this situation. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. That was a long sentence, and it actually keeps going. This is a the situation. There was no bush of the field, and the land was lacking plants and fields. They hadn't quite sprung up yet. And then he goes in this big parenthetical statement to say, well, it's because there's no rain, and there's no man to work the ground, and there was a mist, and then close the parenthesis, and then he says, this is what happened to the situation. The situation. There's no man to... Keep the creation lush. There's no man to work the ground, to care for creation, to rule over it. That's the situation. Here comes the resolve in verse 7. Then God formed man. So the situation is not good. The world is not being maintained. It's not being ruled. God doesn't have a representative on the earth. So He's going to fix that by forming man. And the way He's fixing this problem, we'll see... Three actions followed by three results. So the first action is right here that God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and now here's the result. And man became a living creature. From the dust, God formed man. <laughs> Do you ever feel dirty? Dirty? Oh, man, there's so many times I just, especially when you're in God's presence, it's so humbling sometimes. Oh, hi, Yahweh. You created the stars, and I'm made of dust. Here I am. And so many times I know I'm dirty. I've I've totally blown it. I've totally sinned. I come before God and I think, I'm so cheap. I was just lusting after those possessions or person, and I just lied over there. And I've not been holy, and here I am. I feel so like a speck of dust before you. I feel so rotten and so dirty. And that's the point, though. Christian, right off the bat, God shows, man, we're not as significant as we think we are. We're made of dust. The only thing that makes us significant is God's opinion about us. But we, in and of ourselves, we're dependent. We're imperfect. And not quite yet. But now, we are depraved. We have rotten moral standards. Man, of course, hadn't become depraved yet. He hadn't fallen yet. But he's still imperfect. He's not, like God, self-sufficient. He's not, he can't do everything. He's dependent upon God. There's respect of dust. And I love remembering that, though, at the same time. Because the Psalms make it clear. Psalm 103. In fact, why don't you turn there? Psalm 103, the Psalms make it clear that God knows we're dust. And you know, that encourages me. He doesn't expect way too much out of me. How come you can't be more like the angels in heaven, you loser? (laughs) No, you're dust. I understand your weaknesses. Psalm 103, starting at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Amen. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, He remembers that we are done. How is it that God separates our sin like, from, as the East is from the West? How is it that like a Father, He has compassion for us with tender loving mercies? It's because He knows your frame. He remembers that you're just dust. He made you. He knows that. So, when you blow it, you don't have to come before God and think, I'm not worthy. Well, you should. You should be humble. But you don't have to think that He's going to kick me out of His presence, that He's going to withhold these blessings from me, and He can't possibly grant the request of my prayer because I'm I'm rotten. I'm dust. God says, I know that. It's fine. You come to me humbly, I can take care of all of that. So I love it. We're made of dust. And He knows that. So I can go on life knowing I am so dependent on God and I'm so completely fine with that. I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm better for that. So God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then man became a living creature, when the breath of God went into him. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Scriptures, every single, all the Scriptures are breathed out by God. The Word is breathed out by God. And I have found it to be true that I find life when I inhale the Scriptures. It's the breath of God coming into me. And then in prayer, I exhale. That's breathing. And to live, you have to breathe. Christian life is found in this breathing cycle. Breathing in God's breath. And then exhaling ours to Him in prayer. Christian, when you do that, you find life. You find, you find yourself no longer just just dust and unrotten, but dust with purpose. Dust in the hands of God. Dust with His life and in His molding and forming, shaping capabilities. By the way, when you read Second Timothy 3 verse 16, it goes on to say that the God-breathed scriptures are able to make a man as He should be. So, that's cool. As we breathe in His breath, God forms us and we live. So that's first action. Second action to correct the situation is in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. Result, there he put man whom he had formed. Now, a garden is, and especially in the Hebrew, it's referring to a closed, a a specific location of his creation. I've always thought, like, the world was created and the whole thing was a paradise. But more correctly is to think of a garden. God made the paradise a garden. The rest of the globe was there, but he specifically honed in on one spot, and that's where he put man. That's where he put him, in this one spot. So the garden, uh, it means like ple- um, it means pleasure and delight and blessing and well-being. This is what he made. It's gorgeous and lush. And after he put man, a place of blessing, well-being where he's completely <coughs> satisfied in this garden. And it says that the garden was in the east. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. Now the east speaks of life in ancient culture. Um, You look at the Egyptian; all of their temples were on the east side of the Nile River. All their pyramids, the tombs, were on the west side of the river. Because in ancient culture the east was the side of life because that's where the sun rose. The west was the side of death because that's where the sun set. So this is a lush, blessed, satisfied garden in a place of life is what the author is trying to picture and it was in Eden. Now Eden is a mountain and you, um, if you read ex, uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 there's an account there about Lucifer the most glorious cherubim and it says that he was lifted in his heart, and so God cast him from the mountain of Eden. Eden is a mountain. And it has, um, well, so there's a mountain. The garden's on top. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so I'm trying to slow down. But there's a river. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Verse 9. And then out of the ground, so third action, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's the result, is that these two trees were amongst the trees that sprung up. Two trees. The tree of life for the the sustenance of eternal life for them. It would appear that they needed to eat from this tree in order to maintain... livableness, (laughs) Um, in in Revelation we see the tree of life in heaven. John sees it there, and it, it says it's for the healing of the nations. So it would seem that man was able to sustain longer life by eating from the tree of life. It was, in a way, a lot how the Christian experiences his eternal life, By eating from Jesus. Jesus said, if you want life, John 6, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And we did that downstairs through communion. We partook and we were expressing our faith in Jesus, partaking of him, that he is our life. And through partaking of him, we are as if eating from the tree of life. We are finding life in him. Through him we'll have eternal life. And so this tree of life is actually, in in some senses, it's a picture of Jesus right there in the garden. That through man's communion with the tree, they were extended in life. Now the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, talk more about in chapter 3. But this was the antithesis of life. Because here, the tree of life expressed dependence upon God, while the tree of knowledge expressed independence from God. Ah, who makes you my judge over what's good and evil? I'm going to be the judge. And that's the idea. The tree of knowledge partaking of that expresses I want independence from you. We're self-governing people. We have that capability. So, we'll of course get more into that in chapter 3. Now a river, verse 10, flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. So the river was to water the garden... And it divided into four. It talks about the four there. Um, this is the way I picture it. It doesn't explicitly say this, but I picture Eden as the mountain. The garden is on top and probably the whole thing is lush and green and tropical. It's, it's, maybe it even goes up to heaven almost. It's just magnificent. And cascading down the four sides are the four rivers. You could just imagine lush water cascading down and and green vegetation like you've never seen and angels descending and ascending from the mountain. And God is there. It, It says that Adam and Eve fellowshiped with God. He lived there. They had that perfect communion. In fact, in many regards, this garden was a temple guarded by cherubim. God lives there, you talk with God, and when you read Revelation and look at the temple of God, the whole thing looks just like the garden. The temple of God in Revelation is, it's this, um, it doesn't say if it's either cubed or a pyramid, but it says that it's, it's big, it's like a city, it's either a cube or a pyramid, because it's equal in height and width and breadth, and a river cascades from it. And it, it, you could see it just like a mountain, a city mountain with the river cascading, and there God dwells amongst His people. Now, these four rivers, starting center, I can just imagine it, coming from God and cascading down the four sides, and they go into the four corners of the earth and through those waters. It, it doesn't say this, but I can imagine that man's purpose was to work the garden, not because it needed work to bear fruit, It was bearing fruit. God gave it life through the river. They could just pick and eat. He wanted them to work the garden to expand it so that it would follow the four rivers to the four corners of the earth and therefore make the entire globe this glorious paradise which is what we see the new earth will be. That's God's ultimate goal is to make a global paradise and perhaps, this is my suggestion, is that man was put in the garden to work it to make this This experience, this temple of God's presence go throughout the entire globe. Perhaps. By the way, in verse 15, it says that God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Those two terms, work and keep, are used of the priests in Numbers, the first few chapters of Numbers. Those words are used to describe the priest's duties in moving the tabernacle. So there is a parallel here to man having priestly duties in this temple of God, perhaps to make it spread through the rest of the world. Um, Another evidence that seems to suggest that this is like a temple is that when man was cast out because of his sin, what guarded the tree of life? Remember the, the cherubim with the flaming sword. Now, go to the tabernacle and the temple of Israel. What was on the veil that guarded the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God dwelt? Do you recall what they embroidered on that veil? God told them to embroider cherubim into the veil. So, because of sin... A a cherubim on the veil blocked man's access to God's presence in the temple. And in the garden, when man sinned, a cherubim blocked man's access to that life-giving dependence on God, that tree of life. They couldn't go to that anymore. It seems in many ways to represent a temple. And man, how blessed they must have been to live in this paradise because they're with God. They must have been completely satisfied They didn't have any wants or any needs. They were with God. There wasn't that frustration within of yearning and longing that they can't quite reach for everything their soul wants. It was all there. If you needed food, eat it. If you needed satisfaction, God lived with you. You were a complete person. Not a perfect person, but a complete person. They had everything going for them. But now the stage is set. You guys know what happens. I know you know the story. But the stage is now set. In verse 16. God, the Lord God, commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why this law, God? Because if you eat of it, you'll die. This is my protection plan for you. Now, and this is what I want to finish our time looking at is, why? There's this temple, man lived with God, it was paradise, everything was going good. Why did God even make a tree of knowledge? Why couldn't he have just left that part out of it? I want to suggest three reasons, and I'll try to go through this quickly. First, because if there was no tree of knowledge, there would be no worship. The tree of knowledge established free will for man. You can worship me and find fulfillment in me, or if you don't want to find fulfillment in me, there is the tree of knowledge. And you can find it in that. Will you be obedient to me, Adam? If you are, I know you love me. If you're not, I see where your heart is. I'm giving you the choice. God could have made us all robots. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. But, how? you know, if I hold a gun to all your heads and say, Give me five bucks, I would really feel loved, wouldn't I? No, no, not at all. But if I said, you know, guys, I just really, I'm homeless. I have nowhere to go. I just need some money. And all of you just lavished on me like 5,000 bucks. Man, I'd feel loved. Because that was your, your own choice. So the tree of knowledge established choice. Man had option. He had free will. Will he worship? Second reason is it sustained Paradise that tree ruined paradise, it did. But, can you have paradise if you have no freedom? (laughs) If God didn't give man the option of trees, would it be paradise? Or would he simply be going around this little prison garden that he was forced to live in and be doing everything God says, and never understand what it is that he's satisfied, never understand there's anything apart from God that's evil or that's against him, there wouldn't be paradise. Follow this. I said man hasn't sinned yet, but he's not perfect. See, he's not self-sufficient like God. He needs something. He's dependent on the tree of life. He's dependent on God. Because of that, if you let man have his perfect way, his will, every time, all the time, being imperfect, what's going to happen to paradise? Imperfection is going to corrupt paradise. But, if you allow there to be dependence by giving choice and man choosing to hang his life in submission to God, you are establishing paradise because man is no longer the ruler of the garden, God's the ruler. No longer is imperfection ruling, but perfection is ruling. There must be submission to God to experience paradise. Just just look at people who don't submit to God and who decide, there is no options, everything is what I want. Look at them. They are not living in paradise. They're living in prison. They're living enslaved to their passions and their lusts and their sins. So by establishing a choice, He established paradise, it really can't exist without the tree of knowledge. Because it, it made God God. That's all that, So then finally a third reason. I believe he put the tree there because it was his will. It was his will. But 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 it made man sin. It was his will. Do not think for a second. That God put the tree there and said, I think they're going to worship me and this is just for all the other purposes and everything's going to be good. And Oh no, Adam, what'd you do? You ruined everything. Don't think for a second that that was God's thinking. It was God's will. It was His will that that tree was planted there. He knew what man would choose and yet it was His will. I don't believe that, Brandon. Okay, then tell me God's not sovereign. If, he, if it wasn't His will, then you're telling me that God was surprised by sin. I don't think so. Secondly, look at the New Testament. In three locations, four actually, it talks about Jesus being foreordained before the foundation of the world. Ephesians says that he has um, he's blessed us and chosen us before the foundation of the world. How can he choose Christians if he didn't know man was sin before he even created the world? He knew. He knew Jesus would be sent. It was God's will. So, think now with that perspective of God-fashioning man. Making his veins and filling them with blood. And thinking, I'm going to come to this earth and my veins are going to be ripped open. My blood is going to pour forth. As he stretched the skin on Adam, knowing this skin is going to be lacerated. It's going to be shred hamburger meat. As he formed Adam's back, my back is going to be whipped one day. As he made the head, this head is going to be pressed with thorns one day. It was all His plan. Imagine as He made man what was going through His mind. And Then, when man did sin, separated himself from the tree of life, Jesus came and hung on the tree of Calvary to give us life and give us access to the tree of life in the new earth. And that's beautiful. And that's how it was God's will to glorify Himself, not just as Creator, but as Redeemer, as Yahweh Elohim. So, Lord, I pray that You would allow us us to know that You are not surprised by our failure. You know we're dust, and yet, God, it was Your will to send Your Son and to deal with that. We thank You. So, Father, may we know your love in an extra-personal way and press it on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.